All right, on Plain Spoken, I've been doing a series on Wesleyan denominations, and I have covered a number of groups, and uh, the purpose of this was to take people and and groups, uh, churches that have disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church and help them to discern where they belong, who it is they want to belong to, how it is they want to belong to. And so what's become clear as I've done these interviews is there are lots of different groups, some of which meet the definition of a denomination, some of which don't, or they come close in some ways. You know, it's kind of the Wild West right now. And so um, there are different people who've, who've listened and watched over time, people from all over the American religious landscape, some, you know, Lutherans, some Presbyterians. But there are also a lot of people that are Wesleyans that are a part of other networks that may or may not qualify as denominations. Um, I, I was reached out to the other day by a gentleman named Andy Hogue, who is tied to a Wesleyan denomination, uh, but he's also part of uh, some somewhat of a house church network. I don't know anything about either of these. He sent me materials to look at. I did not have the time to look at them, so he's going to be gracious with me, and uh, he's going to bear with me as I ask him questions about his own group that he's a part of. Um, he's not going to speak so much about the denomination he's a part of today. He's going to have denominational leadership. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe put something together soon, but he's mostly going to focus on this house church movement that he's a part of. And so if this is something that you've been interested in or you'd like to know more about, I, I would urge you to stick with us and, and learn about how they operate and, and kind of what they're about. So at this point, I'll turn to you, Andy. So much, uh, I'm, I'm so thankful to you for joining me today to explain who you are and what you're about. Are you doing okay this morning? Oh, doing wonderful. Great. Where are you joining me from? Austin, Texas. Ah, oh, Texan. I was born in Lubbock, so, you know, I know it's a different city, but same Texas, so. Yeah, former Republic, you know, my, my dad was born in Slayton, so near Lubbock. Okay, very cool, yeah. West Texas boy, uh, I'm now in the lush, green, uh, northeastern area of Oklahoma, so, uh, but uh, not too much distance between us, although uh, I wouldn't want to try and drive down there. So you're, you're the head of a, uh, a house church uh, in, in your home, you're you're technically a pastor. Although um, I, I don't know anything else about your story, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you've gotten to where you are now? Yeah, we all get to learn together. That's kind of how the uh, the house, the organic house church works. Is we're all in the same pattern. Uh, no one really has the the leader workbook ahead of time, so we all kind of open scripture and get on the same page. So it's pretty appropriate that you didn't um, uh, do a whole lot of prep, and that's all right. We're all busy. I understand. <laughs> I get that too. We all work for a living. But basically, in around 2015, my wife and I, um, I was part of a Nazarene church beforehand. I was chairman of the board, and uh, like a lot of churches happened, uh, there was the urge to merge with another church, and they went super contemporary and there was the um, inevitable dispute and I was on one camp. So anyway, uh, my wife and I got married in 2013. So I joined her church. I said, okay, I'm going to leave the church politics and join her Baptist church. And uh, we joined her church. And after 15 years of loyal service to her church as a music minister, um, there was also church politics. And uh, I won't go into detail on that, but we decided that in all of our years of being um just very loyal to institutional churches, which is our word for brick and mortar churches that meet in the way you'd think on Sunday mornings in a building or in a rented space somehow. Um, there were a lot of people in our circles that would not come or they might come to one special service and never come back. Uh, they just didn't like a quote unquote organized religion. Mm -hmm. I joke with them and say, do you prefer disorganized religion? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, one day I called a bunch of them up and I said, Hey, we're going to do it. Uh, this is something I've been kicking around for a long time. Uh, I had several Bible studies on my college campus when I went to the University of North Texas that were um, very similar to a house church, but we just didn't feel like we were old enough or had enough uh, oversight. So we didn't really pull the trigger and call the church. We just met as a Bible study. So but I said, now I think we got it. You know, we're married. We've got kids. Um, I feel like uh, now's the time. So we're going to open our doors. We're going to see how it goes. And we had about uh, five or six show up. And we've been doing it ever since then. And we've been through different waves. Uh, we've, we've got a couple of old timers that have stayed with us, but uh, it's been a wonderful experience. So uh, we've learned quite a bit, but um, mainly it was a breath of fresh air to get away from some of the things that distract us from, you know, the great commandments and the great commission, which is to love God, love others and go make disciples and baptize. Uh, sometimes we get caught up in church budget disputes, uh, styles of worship, but just to meet in simplicity even if it seems dull sometimes to some uh, visitors, um, it's just nice to breathe 
uh, all be on the same level, even though there's certainly a flow to things. And uh, I've been doing that for a long time, and, and God has really blessed it in some uh, ways I've never expected. And I'd love to share a little bit about how uh, about this uh, weird journey we've been on. Yeah, tell me, let me get clear on the, the broad strokes. When did you pull the trigger on this home church? Yeah, about 2015. 2015. So you've been doing this for almost around eight years, if I... Uh, there about. Okay. So, and then you started with six people outside of your household... Is that the same size group now? Has it grown? Has it shrunk? It's ebbed and flowed. Of course, uh, the suburbs around Austin are extremely um, volatile. People move in and move out. Uh, we've had up to about 18 before. And one time we had um, uh, the kids outnumbered the adults with uh, 12 kids and seven adults. <laughs> so you never know what you're going to get. But uh, we've been through a lot of different uh, combinations of folks. And um, a house church ideally shouldn't go over about 25 or 30 people before you can no longer uh, freely participate. And we all know how that goes in prayer meetings or Bible studies. Mm -hmm. But um, the idea is to multiply. But in my experience, we've never had to multiply. Uh, people have just been sent out. Either they got another job or moved elsewhere. Um, we've had two people um, disagree with us on doctrines like uh, faith healing and things like that that have just uh, started their own meetings. Mm -hmm. But we've never had to intentionally multiply the group. But uh, I'd still say we're a small group. We're sitting at about eight right now, <laughs> but uh, it's it's still a blessing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and this house church is not—is it or is it not part of a larger network? Hmm. It's not part of a larger network per se. It's an organic church. We don't even have a name for it. We don't have a bank account. Um, our our donations are all cash, so we spend it as soon as we get it. And uh, we are friendly with various denominations. Uh, we've got some friends that are uh, connected well to the, the Baptist denomination locally, the association. Um, I'm connected to both Baptist and uh, the National Association of Wesleyan Evangelicals, a small denomination. Um, but it's all on an individual to individual basis because uh, we have no bylaws we could submit to headquarters. And there's nothing to really affiliate to. We're just, uh, just kind of Christian friends getting together and reading the Bible, praying, taking the Lord's Supper and uh, serving together. And we really haven't done anything that um, makes us an institution or gives us a sign or business cards. We just we just gather mm -hmm. and it's hard to join. And uh, other groups we've looked at in terms of partnership have kind of taken a step back and go, well, how, how do we know what we're joining? I'm like, well, you're joining us individually. So <laughs> anytime we've had to cooperate, we've all had to as individuals sign on. Mm -hmm. So that that's the experience, too. So I think I'm understanding the words you're saying. What would be helpful for me would be to hear you talk about how it is that that you personally uh, are part of the the Wesleyan Methodist heritage. What parts of that that story have applied to you in your life that you continue to hold on to? Well, I'd love to explain that. Um, I mean, both sides of my family benefited from the uh, the Evangelical Methodist Church, which is another small denomination. I think you might have done a video on that. I them. did. Yep. Yeah, gentle giants they are. I really just uh, grew up uh, looking at them like just kind-hearted um, servants, but at the same time, quiet about their faith, mm. you know? And I, um, they never really explained much about entire sanctification. They never really, um, you know, got on the, you know, the head coverings or the holy roller bandwagon, some of the uh, the fundamentals do. Mm -hmm. But they were just uh, evangelicals, they said they were. Um, but um, when I joined an EMC church when I was in college, um, I was absolutely impressed by the fact that we had a chalkboard in the fellowship hall that was full of scripture references, um, not scripture written out, but just, you know, Psalm 28, five, um, Habakkuk one, two, and it was full. And I said, uh, pastor, is that going to be our study for the month or the year or the quarter? He goes, uh, in his Irish accent, he goes, no, Lottie, that's for tonight. <laughs> I said, I found my home. <laughs> And so I jumped into the small 20-member uh, Methodist church in Denton, Texas. And um, I had spent some time around the EMC with my family. My uh, grandparents were part of a EMC church in Fort Worth. My um, paternal grandparents were part of an EMC church in Slayton near Lubbock, where mm -hmm. um, you hail from. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they all kind of grew up around that, but I myself did not. But I was excited to learn more about my family heritage. And the more I dug into it, the more I found there was a lot that no one really articulated. And I read uh, Wesley's explanatory notes. I read his journals. Um, I got this collection of books up here, his uh, writings. I still got them, one of my mm -hmm. prized uh, possessions, actually. Um, 
but I noticed there was a there's there's like oil under the ground here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, guys, this is spindle top. We need to tap into this. This mm-hmm. is powerful, and we're not really teaching error distinctives. Mm-hmm. And I got whole um, what's the word enthusiast? They call it enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. They said, Andy, you're becoming an enthusiast. I mm-hmm. said, okay, well, mm-hmm. maybe I'll chill out a little. I'm just excited for now. But what's the stuff about holiness? What's the stuff about entire sanctification? I want to learn more. Mm-hmm. And um, going back to church politics, uh, we did have that. Uh, there was that, um, you know, guilt that we should be doing more. We should be doing more to reach the youth. And the whole thing changed. And I left. Long, long story. Um, but I, I left the EMC when I was about 21. I was the administrative board chairman, maybe one of the youngest in uh, EMC history. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have been. <laughs> but uh, I left with my tail tucked between my legs and feeling like um, I had this rebel Methodist heritage that no one really wanted to take in. Uh, the mm-hmm. UMC didn't uh, seem to accept me as a conservative, which I definitely was. I was chairman of my college Republicans chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just felt, well, I got to start a Bible study. And so I did that and I applied some of the principles I learned from the EMC and learned from my own study about Wesley's writings and just did the best I could to keep that spirit of Wesley's bands and his society without, you know, requiring tickets and, approval or anything but we we did the best we could to have mutual accountability and to um go from house to house and apartment to apartment when i went to college and it was a great experience and one i've taken with me and even though um i didn't join a wesleyan church until i moved to austin later on um that stuck with me in every denomination i joined and it had been a that that doctrine was a great benefit to me so while i have rarely been a wesleyan in my life in terms of affiliation the doctrine has always stuck with me, and I feel like this is my tribe. Yeah. So, so much of—so John Wesley was an Anglican priest located within the institutional church. He did—the Methodist revival was something that was outside of the institutional church, but also worked in conjunction with it. As I'm listening to you, I'm hearing um, a lot of heartbreak and distaste for church politics, which is a broad— broad category, a lot of things can go wrong there. But even so, it seems to me that John Wesley's personal and public theology was so intimately tied to the church that it seems odd to me that someone would subscribe to his theology while also being so uh, averse to the institutionalized church. And so I, I think I understand all the words you're saying, but then the particulars of how you fit it together is a mystery to me because we're we're just now talking. Um, so perhaps perhaps it would be interesting to hear about okay in your in your home church that has been meeting for eight years, how is it? Um, in what ways have you seen the intersection of doing your lives together as Christ called, and the particular insights and encouragements of John Wesley and 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 what you learned from him? How much how much overlap is there? Is it is it just John Wesley and you privately, and then a, a, a kind of a generalized scripture-based home church, or do you think that a lot of the ways in which y'all do life together is directly informed through the Methodist story and the theological heritage you have? You brought up uh, entire sanctification and holiness, and those are distinct uh, parts of the heritage that we have uh, through John Wesley. Uh, but is it is that the, the nugget that you hold to, or does it get more uh, broad than that? I would say broad, and um, I would say broad in almost a transcendental way. And I don't mean that in the liberal existentialist variety of transcendentalism, but almost as if um, in the same way that John Wesley was loyal to the Church of England until his death, mm-hmm. at the same time transcended it. In his latter writings, you see a lot of references to the primitive church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the early church. Mm-hmm. So there was an ideal of there being something more organic and even practicing baptism by immersion. Wesley mentions that in his explanatory notes. I was shocked, but he didn't do it. He was loyal to the uh, traditions of the Anglican Church. Mm. And I think maybe he saw that it could only go so far, or it can only go as far as God wills, or perhaps as far as practical. So I think uh, while the societies, the bands, and his preaching stations were um, as effective as the early church in some locales, he didn't ever feel a need to create a new institution. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, he warned Francis Asbury and uh, Thomas Coke not to do that. There's the famous Dear Frankie letter to that uh, extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, to, not to bash um, the Methodist Episcopal Church and its uh, descendants or anything, but in the early Methodist history, you found quite a few that didn't go with 
the institutions that formed after Wesley's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Kelly is one example with the uh, Republican Methodist Church that soon became um, a variety of Christian church, uh, Church of Christ. Um, there's a lot of history there of um, people that were touched by the Wesleyan awakening, but went a simple direction. But it goes back even further than that. Uh, Martin Luther wrote about a third evangelical order. He talked about the first order being basically the Catholic Church, the second one being what we would recognize as a Lutheran service today, and the third one being a simple home meeting. But he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I can't find a handful of people in all of Germany that are ready for this. So he kind of gave up on this third order. Uh, Wesley never went as far as the primitive church, but it was out there. And while I still believe strongly in serving with institutional churches, um, believe me, I do not have an aversion to them. I think that uh, we need to act as the church and be the church. The churches that have grown the most in our day and age have mastered the art of the cell group. Um, Look at uh, Saddleback Church uh, as one prime example, or Hill Country Bible Church in my area. They've mastered the art of the small group and tapping into that. But uh, my conviction has always been, how come it's the institution controlling the small groups and not the small groups feeding into the institution? It always seems to be a little uh, backwards and sometimes even counterproductive. And I hope that uh, answers your question a little bit. It does. No, that's that's good. That's good. It's... um... So I just recently did an interview with a, a friend whose church disaffiliated, and now they're just leaving the title Methodist behind, and they're going to be a non-denominational church. They, they're they of the mind that denominations, this kind of authoritative uh, connectional body, it just does more harm than good, uh, has a lot more risk than benefit. Um, and so I'm, I'm very familiar with why it is that, that individuals or groups would conclude that these institutional structures just really are not a helpful way of making disciples. You know, maybe in the past they were, but at least in the current present moment, it, it, it really carries more baggage than help. I find myself really reluctant. <clears throat> well, it's not that I won't engage that. It's just um, so as one who does head up an institutional church, there, you know, institutional um, church politics rears its head all the time. And so something that I've... Um, considered is that that's something that Christ has intended for us and that those things are put in front of us so as to grow in Christian virtue and figure out how to do conflict well. And so yeah. what I what I brought to you, you might stay tuned to my channel because I, I brought it to my friend Matt in this conversation. I tied this desire to separate from the institutional church as similar to to people who want to separate from the church altogether, um, who just, they get church hurt and they go, I don't think Jesus wants me to be hurt in this way to deal with this stuff. I, I, it's just easier, simpler. I feel better if I don't have to deal with all this crap. And so um, I, that does seem to be a very different approach than people who go, okay, no, we're supposed to deal with this crap and we're supposed to be holy and we're supposed to prevail and come out on the other side of it. Do you um, think that that's just kind of, I mean, and I can receive critique and correction. Do you think that I'm kind of clinging to a lost hope whenever I'm imagining that we can do brick and mortar institutional churches that also prevail over church politics and grow in holiness alongside one another? Do you think that that's kind of silly? Because what I would say is that cells, small groups do have to be in place. You know, that's Clearly, John Wesley was he was very emphatic. You couldn't be a part of the Wesleyan Society if you were not an active and, and faithful member of your, your class meeting. But even so, his understanding, unless I've been completely misunderstanding, is that that has to be done in conjunction with the institutional church and that there is a, a dialogue between the other. It's not necessarily top-down, although sometimes it is, but there's a dialogue between the small group and the institutional church. It's a two-way conversation. And that's always made sense to me. So as I'm hearing you talk about, we've we've had these institutional experiences here. We have now decoupled from institutions. We're in a house church now where we just don't have that stuff. There is money, but it's not exercise the way a brick and mortar church does. There is authority, maybe. I, I haven't heard that. So those are the two things that I hear about whenever I read Acts of the Apostles, house churches being tied together under common authority and common budget. That's what I've understood denominations to be. Well, and shared doctrine, of course. 
but I hear you sure. existing outside of that and saying, no, but we are still authentically Christian. And and so how that works, the mechanics of that is still, I'm not going to say that that makes no sense. I'm going to say that that seems much riskier and more threatening to me than having an institutional body with written doctrine that everybody is supposed to be held accountable to. So help me, and it's not just me, anyone who's watching this, if they have my same skepticism, what is it that you think people like me or people like them fail to appreciate about a simple house church that is not at all tethered to a brick-and-mortar institutional church? Yeah, Uh, there's a lot of... of Threads we can take yeah, here. Let me yeah. back up. No, I'll give you plenty of space. Go ahead and do whatever you want with it. Absolutely. Well, a lot of thought there. You're you're a thoughtful man. I read some of your Substack, and I can see some of that in our conversation here. Oh, so thanks. thank you for yeah. your ability to analyze and just cram so much into a single stream of consciousness. It's just oh. it's an art. You're, oh, thanks, you're, Andy. Thank you, are. <laughs> but uh, um, I would say that deconstructionism has plagued our church lately. It goes along with uh, various uh, movements that happen when people distrust government. And it's ironic because my day job is political communications. Cool. And it's strange that politics for that reason, right? <clears throat> but um, I think deconstructionism and the new atheism, and even the, the American atheism we saw in the 70s, it all kind of follows a trend of uh, questioning authority. We had that in the 70s, of course, we know, looking back. Uh, we had Bush fatigue in the 2000s. Um, I believe we supported Bush very strongly back then, but I recognize a lot of people looked at authority and thought, well, I'm going to throw God in there too, and gave up on him and read Richard Dawkins, right? Um, today, we have uh, you know the sons of Christopher Hitchens are still out there, and deconstructionists who like to be atheists or doubters but still exist in the church framework. But I think uh, deconstructionism can go another way. We can deconstruct things that aren't essential and reconstruct what is essential. That's what a lot of deconstructionists are trying to do, but they're building in the wrong way. So I think organic house church can be something they can cling to. And we've seen some fruits of that. So I want to hang on to that. You said something very wise that the institutional church can feed into other movements and other movements can feed into the church. Well, I think that's where, um, that that's pretty wise because if you look at the Old Testament, the, the the law of Moses, that's brick and mortar church. That's priestcraft. That's everything that we rebel against today. Because you know, of course, we believe as New Testament Christians that the actual temple is the body of Christ. We are all we all believe that. I mean, even um even Catholics teach at the core of their doctrine that there's a priesthood of believers. They just add a parish priest to that, you know. But we all believe that we're priests. We're the temple. But we don't often act on it. But every once in a while, God will call out something um, outside the gate. Uh, Hebrews 13 is one example um, where Christ had to suffer for us outside of Israel. He didn't die a famous Jewish rabbi. He died on a cross um, because the Roman government and the Jewish authorities conspired to kill him. So he really didn't uh, reform the Jewish church, per se, by the institutional method he did it by going outside of that so i think what we occasionally have to do is do things that aren't necessarily authorized by the institutional church but everything that we've seen in the past 500 years since luther that has been outside the gate has somehow been implemented by the institutional church um look at the sawdust trail of the tent revivals of the second great awakening um liturgy in your average brick and mortar church was a lot different before the uh, tent revivals, you had a pulpit that was on one side of the um, stage, for instance, uh, the, the whole flow of the service went differently. But when the tent revivals experienced, you know, tons of people coming to Christ, many people from the community that wouldn't darken the door of a church building, but would come to the tent revival. What did the churches do? They implemented that flow and said, hey, we got the tent revival on Sunday mornings. Come to us. <laughs> I would dare say that was a benefit for its time. Maybe it's time to reinvent in some ways. And I see God doing that at various points along the ways. Uh, Wesley societies, uh, the Waldensians, uh, the Moravian brethren in their infancy. You can see where God has occasionally pulled somebody, um, and to quote Wesley, pluck a brand from the fire and use it for his purposes. And I don't know what God's cooking up, but I'm seeing some people think, what are we doing this for? Are we doing it right? And what actually reaches people? And small groups, I think, are a part of that. But um, how do we turbocharge those small groups? How do we unleash their God-given commission to fulfill the Great Commission? Yeah. So no, I don't 
silly for that at all. I think that's actually um, maybe an unexplored thought, maybe a half explored thought, but it's worth looking into. And maybe there's some way to apply that Wesleyan small group uh, ethos into your church, maybe that of many others. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of good work uh, from David Watson and Seedbed uh-huh. uh, promoting Wesleyan class meetings. Uh-huh. So maybe there maybe we're at the beginning of something. Yeah, it seems uh, there is much to learn from Wesley's writing with respect yeah. to what they were doing with the Wesleyan revival, the Methodist revival. And I, I think class meetings, mutual accountable, vulnerable discipleship, um, is absolutely essential for the. I mean, this is what John Wesley argued, not just in his later years. I mean, for, from uh, he was pursuing primitive Christianity, and that's his, that's what Martin Luther was going for as well. All the reformers were doing what you were describing here, which is questioning all the <clears throat> accumulations of the Roman Catholic tradition that were not rooted in the first couple centuries of, of biblical Christian faith. And so removing the things that accumulated, get back to the roots, um, that's what gave them the the legitimacy that they claimed. It's only recently with the rise of liberalism that says, ah, forget all that stuff that came before, we're going to do it better. Um, but but it seems to me that John Wesley was was another reformer in the sense that he wasn't trying to do something new. His language was that he was reclaiming old things that had been left um, uh, unattended, and, and the the class meeting being one of them, the doctrines of sanctification and entire sanctification uh, being another thing. Um, so that that all makes sense to me. I, I find absolutely nothing to disagree with you in any of that. The question for me is, how do we reverse? So, okay, so the question is, the splintering that we've seen since the Protestant Reformation— is that something that brings God joy, or is that something that brings Satan joy? You know, and so as I continually, what what Martin Luther had to admit at the end of his life was Lutherans were not living any more sanctified lives than Roman Catholics. So if mm. if the dream of the church is not, I mean, I would agree with you actually that that the dream of the church is not a brick and mortar institution. It is the Bride of Christ, which is a, a mystical spiritual reality that institutional churches are called to tap into, and that's what gives them legitimacy in the eyes of God. That would be my understanding. Um, yes. So so the question then is, what helps us as congregations, assembled bodies of believers, you know, church means, ecclesia, assembly, what kind of assembly lends itself to transforming individual members into the mind of Christ, sharing the mind of Christ together? Is that best done in an informal house church network, or in a, a formalized institutional structure? And the unique answer to Methodism was, yes, both. Uh, you need to have uh, an institutional body where you have authority and, and structure, shared money, shared mission, and you need to have small groups that many, uh, are intimately involved in each other's lives, and without either one of those, the individual is not going to be uh, transformed in the renewing of their minds. So if I understand you correctly, you are not at this point threatened by the loss of an institutional church. You think that informal networks of accountable disciples in each other's homes is sufficient for facilitating the work of the Holy Spirit to transform people's lives. Uh, have I, have I, conc- how much does that correspond with what you actually think? Yes, I believe that. Okay. But I've got a caveat. I think uh, most people won't feel comfortable outside of a program. Um, when they have children, you know, they'll want something to educate their children and make sure they're on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Uh, my own, she's, um, she's on board with me, believe me. But uh, she says, Andy, I, I, I'm missing out on something here. Mm-hmm. She used to do contemporary worship for almost 15 years. And on the stage, you know, with a, a fairly large crowd, not a very large one, but, you know, it was different. Um, when we did house church, I thought, well, we got the worship thing covered. We got Katrina right here. And she really didn't bust out and singing. She didn't go to the piano. She didn't break out a ukulele. She just, I, 
I had to rescue some old hymn books from my old Nazarene church they were getting rid of. And I said, here, we're going to sing some songs I know, and I'm going to do the best I can. And my um, uh, classically opera-trained wife was mocking me for the way I was singing. I'm like, listen, I'm not here to lead singing. I'm here to teach you guys to sing and sing spiritual hymns and psalms like the Bible says. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what we're into. Um, Very few people, by and large, will come to a house church and maybe we need to use the word ecclesia instead. I don't know, but they'll, they'll see us and go, something's missing. And they'll go back to the institution or they may need the institution. They may need a large class. They may need to know that they have the support of a, a larger group. But um, I do think a house church is sufficient as a church. We have a many in our group that this is their only church. Mm-hmm. We have a few that also um, attend uh, brick and mortar churches. And a uh, matter of fact, we moved to 2.30 p.m. I know we, met, we were a dinner church for a while. We moved to the evenings. <laughs> that was kind of a neat experience. Mm-hmm. But um, we decided we're going to make some room and not compete for prime time. We're going to go bless our neighborhood churches and see what we can do. So my wife and I found our nearest church was First Baptist Church of uh, Leander, which is north of Austin. And we went there and uh, I ended up uh, running the nursery for a few months. And (laughs) my wife ended up on stage singing contemporary worship again. And it was great because uh, we could escape some of that and go deeper into the house church and leave some of um, the problems we saw with that church behind. But on the other hand, um, you know, it was great to be able to serve with a body of believers that were faithful and they attended regularly. And uh, that church split three ways by the time we were done. It was a weird situation. But uh, that pastor um, drafted me as associate pastor at his next stop mm. and I kind of raised my hands and say, OK, and Baptists are like that. <laughs> and I find myself for the last five years feeling a pulpit once or twice a month. I'm, I'm doing pre-marital counseling. I'm teaching and I'm, I'm counseling. And so. I guess a, a, like a licensed local minister might be in the UMC or a, or a lay exhorter might be in the EMC. Um, that's kind of the role I found myself in. And I thought going into this that the institutional church would have hated me. They would have thought I was a schismatic. But to be honest, it just doesn't compute. I tell them we have a house church. And what comes back is, hey, Andy, how's your Bible study? Mm-hmm. Or how's a little prayer meeting? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that even was an intentional slight. But that's what goes into their head to say, yeah. what kind of church? And yeah. say, well, we meet in our homes. We study the word. We take the Lord's Supper. We pray together. We lay hands. We do all the stuff a church does. But it comes back, how's your Bible study? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's just where we are. But I tell people we are not here to compete. We're here to augment what God is doing through the churches. Yeah. And that's been a journey, too. Katrina, my wife, has uh, sung for a very large church. She's got about 800 people in Cedar Park nearby. And she uh, commutes about an hour once a month to um, another uh, resort community nearby. But we have a little circuit in between us on Sunday mornings, and it stays quite busy. But um, house church is home base. Uh, my children, I have to admit, they haven't really caught on to the house church thing yet. They much prefer the youth group um, where Katrina sings, and I make sure they attend that regularly. So it's nice to see that interplay. Um, we're not for everybody. Um, I wish we were. Martin Luther wished we were. I think John Wesley in the back of his mind might have been thinking that too, just from what I've inferred. But um, no, we try our best to recognize we're not the body of Christ locally. We're we're an expression of that. And if we mean that, we need to act like it and not just be church number 113, but be part of the one body of Christ. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting concept. The The... I, I guess at this point, I don't think I'm a crypto Catholic. You know, I'm not yearning for the Roman Catholic Church. But, you know, John Wesley was rightly described as an autocrat over the uh, the Methodist revival movement. He exercised great authority and control to the degree that he would, you know, kick people out. Um, right, he was. The, the, the other non-denominational gentleman that I, I spoke with recently, my buddy Matt, he, he was of the mind— that um, what's required in the present moment in this current environment that we're in in Western American uh, society is a much less formal, much more dynamic, much more evangelically minded church than the institutional church is managed to be. And yeah. so that I, I think I'm partly hearing you say that. There are some people that are just not going to enter into a brick-and-mortar church, but they might enter into a home. That is partly what you've said, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the 
Episcopal Church used to have more of that. We had a altar or prayer rail prayers. We had testimony nights. We had a more sharing, but a lot of that has gone by the wayside. Yeah. The other thing I'm just thinking about, and it's not necessarily an argument, but as I read my Bible, as I read about early Methodism, one of the things that's clear to me is lacking. So it, I, I'm actually against large churches. I, I don't think that you can be the church when you don't know the people that you're in a covenant community with. So I, I actually think that once you get above 120, 140 people, you can't realistically know all these people anymore. And so the intimacy exactly. really falls away. But, but, but I also I think that having a house church that doesn't correspond with the larger institutional church provides the same problem, where when you only have so much time during the week, you're forming intimate connections with people here that are not necessarily connected over here. And so if the church is an extended spiritual family where we're practicing, we're calling each other brother, sister, we're doing life together, then it seems to me that even if you're not in competition directly with the institutional church, that it would detract from the intimacy that the institutional church could hypothetically otherwise have, that you're providing. I mean, and I've, I've felt the same way about like Freemasonry or, or other clubs where people have close friends a lot of times my critique is, hey, your most intimate relations outside of the family need to be with your church family. You're given what belongs to your church family to these other people over here. And especially if that other family said, well, we are the church, we're just not affiliated with you, then in my head I'm going, well, then you're just part of a different church. You know, go be with your church, you know, because it sounds like you have divided loyalties. You say the name of Jesus in both places, but where are you going to be intimately vulnerable to others who can walk with you in faith and critique, uh, critique you and correct you, admonish you, because uh, that is the role of these intimate groups, right? It's to, to not just get affirmation, but to get corrected. Okay, so, so where's that happening? And I think some people do want to hop in and out of groups so that they can kind of navigate that, and okay, I don't get pushed back here, so I'll go to these people for this, and I get some pushback here, but I can provide, you know, the information I want here. And my understanding of the the, bio, the church scripturally is we're supposed to be checking in every day. We're supposed to be doing life together every day so that we can't get away with that sort of hopping in and out of worlds. So, so how does all that strike you? Do you feel like that I'm misunderstanding some of the dynamics at play in the way that house churches can operate alongside of or independent from institutional churches? Or do you think that I'm right to feel some threat by a house church that would try and engage my people on that level. Yeah, no, not at all. I think that's a, a legitimate uh, concern you bring up, but if I'm going to steal anybody from your church, I'm going to steal 20 at a time. So it's not much of a threat. You know, <laughs> I think it's a <laughs> great. And uh -huh. we're here to leave you alone. We're like the libertarian party of churches. Okay. Mm. And better. We're almost transcendent of the institution since we're not an institution ourselves. We are a non-institutional, non-clerical, non-liturgical body of friends. Mm -hmm. I guess like the might have fashioned themselves as. So we by no means compete with you. Mm -hmm. But what I would say, uh, you make a very good point about picking one body or the other. Mm -hmm. It is the nature of a Christian lately to find the path of least resistance, right. to find the least church or the church that feeds me, you know, like mm -hmm. a little shop of horrors almost, right? Mm, <laughs> but, I hadn't uh, thought of that. That's fun. Yeah. Feed me, Stanley, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, so that's a problem. We need to say, no, you need to be accountable to your local body. But with mass communication, mass transportation, it um, brings up a lot of challenges. We're not accountable to any real community. Mm -hmm. We're accountable to urban sprawl at best. And it's hard because you got somebody driving 60 miles to church and you say, hey, I'm checking in with you. How are you doing? He goes, well, I check in with my mega church cell group once a month and I drive down to see them and we spend one hour together and we spend most of the time doing icebreaker activities and then I'm gone. I'm like, well, you don't have the time, you know, but, but they deflect and say, well, I've got this, but they really don't. So mm -hmm. what we do is we come in and again, maybe we need to drop the word church and come up with, um, you know, ecclesia or assembly or something that brings people to a different understanding. That this is a different thing. This is, this is the church. This is the New Testament body. Mm -hmm. um, not that the institutional churches can't have that. They can. And like I said, we've dropped a lot of those. Um, I, I, saw, I saw a good term in the seminary one time, uh, an ecclesiola yeah. that has left the 
institutional church. Well, that you know, I, used to have a- I think that was the Martin Martin Luther's term that for that the family was to be an ecclesiola in ecclesia that that it's a little church within the, the larger uh, in, institutional church essentially. So and that correct and that yeah. But again, that family would be accountable to the uh, the local parish, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, however, in this case, I think it's uh, almost a, a different paradigm altogether. Where again, they don't even recognize what we're doing. Maybe at one point as we grow, they'll see it as a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, I would kind of have visions of one day having several meetings come together and we'll sponsor, you know, a, a quarterly uh, worship gathering at a football stadium or something. And once that starts to happen, I think that um, institutional churches may feel a little bit uh, impugned upon. But mm-hmm. um, I hope we could be as cooperative as possible. A lot of people in the house church movement see institutionalism as the problem. It was the, our Babylon to flee. And believe me, I sympathize. I've been through the church politics. I get it. But I think uh, just like how Luther didn't necessarily rebel against Catholicism, nor did Wesley rebel against the Anglican church, I don't think we house churches need to rebel against the institution either. Mm-hmm. We just need to understand that it's going to be here. It's going to be around. And uh, what are we going to do with it? Just uh, act like these other churches, these other Christians don't exist, that their efforts at piety and worship and um, leading others to Christ are worthless. No, we need to rally together and augment the body and build it together. That's extremely important. And it's not happening. And I'll tell you something, when I left the EMC, or actually it kind of left me to be honest, um, I thought, well, I'm going to visit all the churches in my neighborhood. We had a Salvation Army down the road. We had a uh, independent Baptist church over here, uh, Assembly of God, um, a church by the similar name that was Baptist over here. So I thought, I'm going to walk up and down the street, and every Sunday, I'm going to visit a different church. Mm-hmm. And within a five-mile radius, none of these churches really knew each other at all. Right. And I said, you know, we might have gotten together for a picnic or something. That was the extent of it. And I went on and on, and I visited all 112-something-odd churches in Denton, Texas. It was a weird accomplishment for me at the time, but well, yeah. I learned a lot But I found that mm, no one really knows each other. No one cares. And and now that I've got a house church in my neighborhood, we're rapidly, we're uh, I think number three or number four of the fastest growing suburbs on planet earth right now. And so we're getting a lot of church plants, but when they come here, they don't look in church directories. They don't ask around. They don't uh, even go to the yellow pages. <laughs> they, they just come in and start a church. Mm-hmm. And there's the sandwich sign on the highway. Now there's like four or five sandwich signs pointing, come to our church, come to our church. Calvary Chapel, you know, uh, the Bible church. And have they ever reached out to me? No. So it's up to me to take that burden and reach out to them. And they may not understand it. They may call me a Bible study at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, I'm happy that we're slowly breaking that down. Um, There may be that threat that the institution may think that we're competing. But in all honesty, we've been competing against each other for a very, very long time. And that's that's division. Maybe something that hasn't really been exposed. Yeah. Well, no. I think I think a lot of people are. I mean, heck, back when I was a kid, there was still tension between Methodists and Baptists. You know, and it was a big deal if a Methodist girl dated a Baptist boy, or you know, don't even think about a Catholic. So, I mean, people are very aware. I mean, I don't think kids today are, but people of my generation and older are aware of of times when these doctrinal denominational disputes uh, were divisive and and had real implications for relationships. And, uh, you know, I still participate in the ministerial alliance here, and some of the pastors are non-adversarial, and some are very adversarial. Um, so, and that's, that's something that I would actually say goes back to Bible times, where Paul is writing the Corinthian church and saying, some of you are bragging about being baptized by Apollos, some by me, some by Cephas, that's ridiculous. I'm so glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you, you know? Um, so this this factional impulse is very human. And again, you know, where I started off saying is, at least for right now, I, the wisdom has sounded like to me that we have to, to go through that and come out on the other side of that in a faithful place rather than um, reject that and, and get away from that. It's just, you know, how do we get away from human nature, <laughs> you know? So... Um, <laughs> The, the, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm understanding more about you as we talk. One thing I'm still not clear on, one of the sure. materials you sent me, and we looked at it right whenever we, we got on the call, is a, a short video explaining the difference between a house church and a brick-and-mortar church, an institutional church. Um, that video was not made by you. It was made by somebody else. You're saying that you're not, your host church is not at all affiliated with a larger network or movement, but you drew on that. 
what what is that from? Is is there any kind of school of thought pertaining to to house churches that you're aligning yourself with? Listening to you, it sounds like you've made up all this as you've gone along, but then you had a resource that someone else made. So so tell me, speak to that. Well, there's a lot of homespun uh, DIY spirit to this. Absolutely, there is. Uh, we're different to the fact that we're uh, considering ourselves that augmenting the local body is a unique feature of us. Uh, a lot of house churches just uh, got tired of uh, Babylon and left, you know. I'm not going back to the building, you know. And some some cooperate well. A lot of Wesleyans do. But um, back to this, uh, there are authors. There are successful church networks out there. There are those that claim to be successful. Uh, there's a lot of... Um, people in the house church movement who are messaging out there. And uh, that video, it was called house church on a napkin. It describes how to explain what we're up to. And uh, while I may not have met some of these people uh, over the years, I've read their books and understood. And I guess I had the advantage of seeing some of this historically before I encountered people out in the wild, uh, visiting so many different churches in Denton. You know, I learned about Watchman Nee. I learned about some offshoots of his group. Uh, some were cults, some weren't. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this happened in China, you know? And But so by the time I read Frank Viola's uh, book, A Pagan Christianity, or uh, read one of Gene Edwards's books, or um, found something else similar, or read Neil Cole or Alan Hirsch, I thought, I understand exactly what they're talking about. Matter of fact, I've applied this to my Bible study on campus. I know exactly what this is. This is what Wesley called the primitive church, you know, but it's not a unique idea. There's nothing new under the sun here. It's all been done before, and it's even in the first century. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, we don't know exactly how meeting from house to house looked like, but we've got enough to go on. And if we just let the Holy Spirit lead us, then, well, I guess that's good enough for now. But one thing I have learned is that we need to be active in loving our neighbors, in personal worship, and in leading souls to Christ. If we're not doing that, house church gets pretty darn boring because there's not um, a lead, um, there's not typically a, a lead um, sermon or a topic. There's not a book we all read. There's a no real church calendar. It's just, you know, it can become we're sharing about absolutely nothing, yeah. a dead faith. For yeah. that, a house church can die very quickly. And I think it's almost a good thing that it can, but uh, sure. But uh, I don't see it as leaves on a tree. If uh, what we say by organic is true, then there are some that are evergreen and some that are deciduous, some that turn green, some turn fantastic colors for a while and then shrivel up and fall. And that's okay. Um, I've seen, again, our, our church has had about three or four waves so far of uh, people coming in and leaving, and I've begun to embrace that. Used to, I would sit in my little Methodist church in Denton, Texas, and just kind of go, wow, there's only 14 of us here today. Man, people are going to come here and laugh. We're not winning souls. We're dead. But when we went to the altar, man, we were praying for 140 people. You know, I was thinking that's our parish, right? But I used to feel this guilt. I still it took me a long time to get over that. Mm -hmm. Even when we first started, you know, five people would show up, and I'd feel guilty about that. Mm -hmm. But now I don't. It's like, okay, this is who I was able to reach this week. I've got to work for a living. I've got to drive kids to band. You know, I'm a busy guy. But man, in the process. Here's five people that have met with me today, and that makes me very excited. And instead of feeling that guilt that we're not seeing the, the the massive waves of people coming in like a Billy Graham rally, well, that's fine and good, but does it need to be that way? I don't think so, mm -hmm. but I had to get rid of some of that guilt just to move forward a little bit. I know I'm going off on a different tangent. No, here, I but... think that's helpful. I mean, that's something that, that all pastors deal with in some capacity whenever we're supposedly preaching the pure word and people seem completely unmoved by it and we're, we're preaching the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but we sure aren't seeing it. I mean, that's, that's something mm -hmm. that every pastor has to deal with. And then um, the ways that we process that, you know, uh, or 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 come to peace with it. That's that's all relevant and helpful. I think there are a lot of people that are going to watch this and totally relate. I, I totally relate. I, I've I've processed it differently than you, but that's that's not to say that one is mutually exclusive of the other, or that I think I'm I'm right about everything. What I what sure. I do think would be helpful. I, I, we've spent almost an hour together now. Uh, you you mentioned a number of thinkers that have impacted you and your understanding of forming a. a an ecclesiology, an understanding of the church outside of the institutional uh, norms and behaviors. I think it'd be really cool to have a list of books in the show notes to this episode, whether people listen or watch, 
If you go to the show notes, I'm going to try and put links to the books that have been most influential for you, for people. You know, I remember you said Watchman Nee, and you said uh, uh, Alan Hirsch. There, there's some other thinkers I'm sure that that you could recommend their books. And if people are watching this, and they're just really of the mind that they're not going to be good institutional players, that if they join the Global Methodist Church or the Evangelical or Congregational, that they would just be antagonistic or dragging their feet or resentful, then maybe this is something that that they should be looking at as uh, taking a step back, at least for a season, and looking at a house church and trying to facilitate the intimacy and accountability that the Bible clearly requires in an intimate environment that is not... Um, there aren't the distractions of a budget and a building and, and some of the political things that arise with multiple people. I can totally see that being something that is helpful and needed. And then um, also perhaps sure. in the show notes, I can have contact information for you personally if people want to follow up with you and learn more about starting a house church. Uh, is that something you'd be up for? Absolutely. I would love that. Okay. And I would say, an institutionalist and you're never going to leave the global methodist church uh, that's totally fine you can do both uh, matter of fact you can start something like a house church and call it something totally different or just don't mm -hmm. just gather friends and neighbors and and bring them to your church building if you want to or if they don't well guess what you still have the ecclesia in practice and some pastors might balk at that others might not but in my experience most people frankly they're just glad you're doing something mm -hmm. they might call it a bible study or a prayer group but they'll they're, they're just glad you're doing something outside the the four walls yeah well i think that's a good that's a good exhortation at the end um so how about we just call it uh this will be a good natural end, and then anyone who wants to follow up with you will have good information at the end but andy thank you so much for reaching out to me and Blessings to you and your your church and your Christian walk. Well, thank you so much, you know, Jeffrey. Good to have you. And I do want to add one more thing. Please, uh, go ahead. There, um, networks out there, they, they tend not to uh, last forever. <laughs> but uh, the, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Church of the Nazarene, uh, even the United Methodist Church have had several um, networks to start these kind of ministries and sustain them. They often work their way into missional type groups. That's a whole other subject for another day, I guess. But mm -hmm. uh, um, that's been interesting to me. But it, it's not that the Wesleyan fold hasn't adopted this. Even my small denomination, I had to work on some bylaws changes to get it to where they could recognize a house church. Mm. But uh, one step at a time here, it's it's it's, a, it's shifting gears for some folks. But uh, I think it's good to see that um, the Wesleyans have led the charge on having uh, organic networks. So that's been very encouraging to me. Yeah, yeah. All right, Andy Hogue, thank you so much. Thank you, appreciate it. Yes, sir.